Hello and welcome to the Bold Believer Podcast, a podcast focusing on apologetics and faith-based questions and answers, diving deep into the historical evidence for the Christian faith, truths founded in Scripture, and how it plays out in the world we live in today. And now, here is your host, Josh Snyder. <laughs> all right, all right. Welcome back to the Bold Believer Podcast. My name is Josh Snyder, as always, your host here, and uh, with me in the Bold Believer studio is none other than... Ike Danford. Ike Danford. He's back from Indiana as, as he's been away for two and a, th- two and a half months uh, visiting his family. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We give give him a lot of flack because it seemed like he was gone a long time, but I guess he was only it was gone only, for... It was, it was only two and a half weeks. Two and a half weeks. All right. Well, anyway, he's back with us today, and we are rearing to go on this uh, particular topic. And uh, the next set in this series called Faith Defense, an apologetics-based series... And uh, this episode is going to be focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we might have to do a part two depending on how this all works out today. At the recording of this, we're not quite sure of how it'll all roll out, and we may be, I don't know, talking about a lot of other things that end up coming to mind as we roll through this, because there's just so much that revolves around this particular topic. You, I mean, there's whole textbooks on this particular topic. It's amazing. Uh, but before we get to the most important details, let's get to a very close second, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna do the <laughs> not even a close second. <laughs> Bold joke, joke of the day. Yeah. I got a joke for you today, John. Oh really? All right, what you got? Why are elevator jokes so good? I don't know. Why are elevator jokes so good? Because they work on so many levels. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Okay. Well. Uh, go share that with a friend and make the world a better place, all right? All right. Well, before uh, we keep this rolling, let me say this. Thank you so much to anybody and everybody who's listened. We've gotten uh, hundreds of people listening so far to the podcast on multiple continents across the world. It's pretty sweet to see the growth, and I'm encouraged. And so if you like what we're doing here, please consider following or, or subscribing to the content wherever you get your podcasts. If available, put, leave a rating for the podcast. That helps boost it to the algorithm giants, you know, and uh, share this episode if you find it helpful. All right, jumping right in. Uh, the, the Bold Believer is taking on the effort here today to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would argue and contend that it is the greatest significant event in human history. The greatest and most significant event in human history. Why is that? Well, let me just say this and I'll recap it and restate it and kind of tie it up at the end back to this thought. But if Jesus Christ said he was God, said he was the way, the truth, and the life to the Father, if he said he was the way and rose again after predicting his death and resurrection, uh, that means something. That means that there's some credibility due to this man called Jesus. The resurrection, though, has been widely debated, discussed uh, for thousands of years, and we're going to talk a little bit about the historical facts, the evidence that we find for the resurrection, the spiritual elements to it. Uh, like I've t- touched on it a little bit, but if Christ did not rise, our faith is in vain because Christ was like any other man or somebody who claimed to have deity uh, like uh, Confucius or, or Muhammad. All of these other people are still in the grave. Christ's body did not stay in the grave. He rose. And if he rose, if he rose, according to what we'll present today and probably so much more than we can present, then that means something detrimental, I believe. So, let's talk about it. The pre-resurrection facts are what we'll be looking into here first. And just, just for reference, we will be referencing the 
Josh and Sean McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict book. It's a very, very large book that goes into great lengths and detail. If you want to get the entirety of what we're talking through here today, please uh, get online, order this book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I, I picked mine up at a at a Josh or Sean McDowell conference. No, I picked mine up at a Josh McDowell conference. He signed it. I got to talk with him for a few. I got a selfie with old man Josh McDowell making a weird face in the camera. It was really awesome. Great time. And I've had a conversation with Sean McDowell a couple of times. This man is a spiritual giant. Not not to say that to puff him up, but he is just packed full, jam full of knowledge and information about not only what he believes spiritually, but the evidence that backs that up for historically, artifactually, uh, physically backs up what he believes and why. And I love the study of our faith. So we'll be going into that here today. Pre-resurrection fact, Jesus was dead. This, uh, this was very widely known. Very few people who are trying to critique the fact that Jesus lived or died or resurrected will critique or come up against the idea that Jesus actually died. Understand this, the Romans were masters at execution. Because the Romans had a century or two to perfect this method of execution, namely crucifixion, by the time of Christ, they would have been experts in ensuring the deaths of those they crucified. While Josephus does provide one example of some surviving crucifixion, this is seen as an exception, not the rule. Josephus goes on to write, and we don't have time to get into all of the quotes and things like that, but he does go on to write in great detail about a couple of exceptions, and two out of three of those exceptions died when they tried to be medically resuscitated because of their wounds from crucifixion. Crucifixion was an extremely painful death. Just just in passing, it was a very slow death. Sometimes took days to completely die. It was a slow death of asphyxiation. Asphyxiation. Asphyxiation, that word, yes. <laughs> Where essentially you were hanging down by your hands and supported at the bottom by your feet, uh, nails, and you had to pull yourself up on those nails to breathe. And then you released your breath out and you hung down there because your arms would get too tired to hold you up. And you would do that until you could no longer physically pull yourself up to stay alive and you suffocated. Uh, and that was also after most criminals were beaten severely and on top of that, the nail wounds and stuff that they incurred on their bodies as they hung there. When it comes to Jesus of Nazareth and his experiences on the cross, the result is most assuredly death. Even critical scholars agree that that is the case. Jesus did die. Well, that doesn't prove that he rose again from the dead. But I say all that to say this. Some people will come against the resurrection and say, well, he didn't actually die. They put him alive in the tomb and then he came out all beat up and battered. Uh, still alive and, and acted as if he was the triumphant savior. Well, as, as, I've been, as I kind of hinted at, I have some problems with that theory. And we don't have time to get into every single aspect of this. I've said this already and there's so much to all this and I love it. But uh, Jesus, if he was to prove he was a risen savior, would not have done so if he came out battered and bruised and, and mostly dead and trying to show his disciples that he was the king over death and hell. If in fact he was only swooning as some would theorize on the cross. And I don't think those same disciples that ran and hid, the same Jesus who was arrested in the garden, I don't think those same disciples would go on and proclaim his life to their death. That's something else we'll kind of talk about here as we get into this as well. Something else very noteworthy, and we're going to move on to this here. Jesus predicted his own resurrection. 
Jesus predicted his own resurrection. All through scripture, at least the gospels, when they're, they're accounted by the apostles, they talk about Jesus directly referencing to not only his death, but the fact that he would rise again. Isaac, you got a verse for us there pulled up? Matthew 26, 32. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. That shows that he is going to, he, he's prophesying that he's rising again, that he will rise again from death. Um, and he's also going to meet them in Galilee. Yep. Gives them some details about something. That's a little bit of a foreshadowing Yeah, as well. something that would happen after he came back to life. So Jesus not only predicted his own death, the night that it would happen, he knew exactly when and why it would happen. He knew that he would rise again three days later. And three days later, what do you know? Uh, an empty tomb. Right here in Luke 24, which shows about the empty tomb. Read it. Um, uh, 24, 1 through 5. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, which would be the tomb. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass that they were very much perplexed thereabout. Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. As they were afraid, they bowed down their faces to the earth. They said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. So he, he not only predicted his death, he predicted his resurrection in great detail. Like there was specific, it wasn't just like some fuddy-duddy spiritual lingo that he would put out. Like he even, he used a parable about his light, his resurrection when he said, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And his yep. disciples were like, what's that all about? And he replied to them, dude, I'm going to die. Like he basically point blank was like, you guys, well, I'm going to die. used that same thing to condemn him. <laughs> Yeah, they thought he was talking about the physical temple or the actual temple in, in Jerusalem. He's going to tear down our temple. So Jesus died. That's very widely agreed upon. Even the skeptics and critics and atheists will agree that the, the majority of the evidence that we have physically here today to, to view and to examine points to Jesus' death. What about the history? Uh, historically, we have a lot of people who wrote about this. The Gospels are four of the writers that viewpoint the resurrection and uh, write down details about it. Some people say, well, you can't use the Bible to source its source itself. Well, I'd like to say this. Uh, the Bible is not a book within itself. It is a collection of many books that we've compiled into a single piece of literature that we can hold uh, in, our, in our hands. But the Bible is a collection of historical data taken down by writers all through, all through time. Like, from Moses all the way up to uh, the, the Gospels that, that Paul and John wrote, these were all books that were taken down in accordance to the history. They've been proved many, many, many times by people, not only people who like what the Bible has to say, but people who don't like what the Bible has to say have come up against Scripture and its accuracy and have found that it is a reliable source for historical data. And I say that to say the Gospels claim that Jesus rose from the dead and they are one of or four of many sources that will talk about 
the accounts that took place. There's a few other people that spoke on the resurrection or the said resurrection, the people who talked about it. Uh, somebody externally from scripture, a historian called Grutius. And, um, and then, we, of course, you have Josephus, one of the more popular ones. Let me say this about the reliability of the Gospels. Retired Los Angeles Police Department cold case detective J. Warner Wallace is recognized and is a recognized authority in evaluating the testimony of eyewitnesses. As a professional expert, he has spent hundreds of hours interviewing eyewitnesses and handling eyewitness testimony. He has examined the gospel accounts and explains for us why divergent testimonies are still considered reliable, even when there are points of disagreement. For example, if you read the resurrection documentation and the gospels compared to each other, you will find places that you might say, oh, there's a disagreement or a discrepancy or that this one says one thing and this one says another. Yes, you will find that. But he goes on to say, if there is one thing, this is Jay Warner Wallace, if there's one thing my experience as a detective has revealed, however, it's that eyewitnesses often make conflicting and inconsistent statements when describing what they see at the crime scene. They frequently disagree with one another and either fail to see something obvious or describe the same event in a number of conflicting ways. The more witnesses involved in a case, the more likely there will be points of disagreement. Before I ever examined the reliability of the gospel accounts, I had a reasonable expectation about what a dependable set of eyewitness statements may look like, given my experience as a detective. It turns out that my expectations of true, reliable eyewitness accounts are met. By the gospels, all four accounts are written from different perspectives and contain unique details that are specific to the eyewitnesses. You see a wreck being in the IMPD Explorers when I was younger, um, getting to see those things going on ride-alongs firsthand, you have four different people standing on four different corners looking at the same accident. To one person, it's, you know, one person's fault and the other person was not at fault. To two other people, that person was the one who was at fault. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's four different accounts of the same thing just seen from different angles and different perspectives. Yeah. Uh, which is what the Gospels are. Yeah. The Gospels themselves are written in four different ways. I'm not sitting here knocking the uh, the accuracy of the Gospels, but just oh, because are, one one person mentions one thing and the, that the other person does not, does not mean that one or the other is in error. If they were exactly the same, Jay Warner Wallace goes on to mention that if they are exactly the same, that is evidence of there being conspiracy because they sit down and they make sure that every detail on everybody's level is exactly the same. And uh, that, that is actually it. That's that why is, they separate witnesses. Yep, yep, very good, very good. So historically, Jesus died and was placed in a tomb, and the witnesses of the resurrection all flow well enough together to say that they are reliable witnesses for this event. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the stone size really quickly in passing. The stone that was rolled in front of the mouth of the, the tomb. Some people ask, well, what, what kind of stone was it? How did the people move it? Was it moved in place, out of place? Well, the Gospels talk about it being rolled away when they were there, when, the, when they showed up at the empty tomb, it was rolled away. So that would imply that it was a rounded stone, uh, though I understand that some people in that day had simple cork-like squared stones that they would place in front of mouths of their uh, relatives' tombs to, to plug it up. Uh, this particular one had a rolled stone, which also I understand implies that Joseph of Arimathea had some money, the guy who owned the tomb. 
the guy who said, I'm going to place the Messiah in my own family tomb. The stone that was used to place in front of the tomb, according to a handful of research that was done, was said to have been between one and a half to two tons in weight. Some might ask, well, how do you roll a stone of that size in front of the tomb? A bunch of strong guards. A bunch of strong guards, but what if the guards aren't there? What if it was just Joseph and his family? Here's one theory, and, and I believe that this, this checks out based on some of the reading of Scripture. Gravity worked for them. So the stone was placed on an uphill angle to the tomb, and when a person was placed in there, it was rolled down into place, and there it would sit permanently, blocking in this tomb with their relative in it, and, that this, and in this instance, it was Jesus. So the stone was great of great proportion, and to roll it away would require a lot of people at that point, and, and require a few other things we'll talk about here in a second, require the breaking of a seal. We're going to talk about the seal a little bit. If you know the accounts of the resurrection and the, the death and burial of Jesus, there was a Roman seal that was placed on the tomb. Do you remember why there was a Roman seal placed on the tomb? I don't know specifically, but I wanted to, I want to say that it's so that way the guards could have been held accountable if they did move it to okay. steal. Good, good. I like that. Yeah, you're on the right track. The seal is like what we have in the military. It's called tamper-proof tape. The seal was not to hold it tightly shut because the stone itself did that job very well. The seal was to be placed there to say that Caesar's name was on this. Do not touch. If you touch it, we know you touched it. We know you tampered with it. Don't touch this. Yeah, and uh, like seal so, of a letter. Yeah, so not only this, was the seal placed there to verify that it was going to stay intact, why was the seal placed there? Why did they feel the need to have the seal there? And why did they feel the need to have Roman guards guard this tomb? Uh, they were under the impression that the disciples would have wanted to come to the tomb and move the stone away, take the body of Jesus, so that way they would proclaim that Jesus was risen again. Yeah, yeah, and that that's all, that opens up a whole other can of worms right there. Let me say this in passing, though, as you as you stated that the chief priests came to Pilate, the ruler in Jerusalem at the time, and said, "Hey, Jesus claimed that he was going to rise three days after he died. We need you to guard this tomb for us so that we can keep this from quote unquote happening. We don't want his disciples coming to take the body. We don't want people to act like there's some savior risen. So please come guard the tomb for this amount of days." And Pilate said, "Okay, I'll do that," because he didn't want. And the Jews because Pilate was under Caesar, yeah, they yeah. used the seal right there yep. as a marking, so that way they would not be able to break it. So that way, if they did, they would have been put one. The guards would have been put duty for failure. And then two, they would have known that it would have been tampered with. Yep. Historian Paul Mayer writes this about the seal. The seal was not strong enough to keep someone out, but rather to indicate if the stone and tomb had been tampered with. The seal was nothing more than a cord strung across the rock and fastened at each end. Its purpose was not to cement the rock, but to indicate any tampering with. Yep. Yep, so that's a, that's, that's a little bit about the seal that was placed on it. We talked a little bit about the Roman guard that was placed in front of this tomb under penalty of death. Most likely it was a Roman guard. There's a little bit of discussion of whether or not it was a chief priest guard or the Roman guard because the chief priest went to Pontius Pilate and demanded that something be done. It was very likely Roman guards that were placed in front of this tomb. And so that would imply, that would mean that if they would let anything in or out of this tomb before the time was up, they, their lives were on the line. And uh, I don't know about you, if I had that job, I wouldn't want to let something happen. Even if, even if it wasn't truly a resurrection, I wouldn't want to fall asleep or let, let somebody come in, in the middle of the night and try to take what I was holding for my life 
away. Let's talk a little bit about things that happened after the resurrection. Again, the resurrection was, as Isaac read the scripture on the resurrection a little bit ago, was said to have um, taken place the first day of the week. And there were people that came to the tomb after the fact. So it happened early Sunday. And they saw that the, the tomb was empty, that the burial clothes were still there in place, and that the face mantle or the, the, the linen cloth was folded to the side of the burial clothing. It's folded neatly. Yeah, yeah. Which you said that before. Look at that in, plot. In, in fancy restaurants, um, if you are wanting to go to the bathroom and your food is still there on the table and you don't want them to take it away, you would bring up your lap cloth or your neckerchief that you would be um, using to block your clothes with and you would fold it neatly and set it on top of your plate in sign that you would be back. Okay. You would be returning. Well, Jesus could have been signifying, I'll be back. Or it's signifying that I will be right back. Yeah, I, I am returning. Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll be back. All right. So uh, after the resurrection took place, there's a few things that happened. The women came to the tomb. They were first to see this. All the gospels account for this. They were the first people to see the resurrection take place and account for it. The women showed up at the tomb. The, res- the tomb was empty. And so what did they do? They went and told the disciples. And the disciples went and checked out the tomb. And they found the tomb empty as well. And what I find so extraordinary about this is the disciples in their accounts about the resurrection included the women's testimony as verifiable and factual testimony. What is also interesting about that, or what makes that interesting, is that woman testimony, or the testimony of a woman back in that day was not permissible in court. Therefore, a woman's testimony in many senses, even if it was true, was invalid. Peter ran to the sepulcher and stooping down, he beheld the linen cloths laid by themselves and departed, wondering himself at which at that which was come to pass. So he then was able to verify the testimony of the women to make it admissible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't just like they showed up and said he's alive and then like they didn't nothing else happened. They went and checked it out yeah. and verified it themselves. But what was significant is they included the women's testimony as testimony, like as verifiable testimony. They, if, if it was made up, it actually does damage to this story to include women's testimony at all. They should have just said, well, we went to the tomb as, you know, the men disciples. We went to the tomb and saw that it was empty, yep. you know, if they're making it up. But if they, in fact it was true, they included testimony of women as the first people who came and saw that the tomb was empty. Um, that, I mean, that was that was super interesting. There were multiple people, there were multiple uh, attestations of, of Christ being raised from the dead. Jesus appeared to many, many people afterwards. We have an account all through the gospel. I'm just going to quickly read them in touching here. And actually, Isaac, can you read these in touching? We have, the, here's, here's a list of accounts of people who saw or, and heard Jesus Christ here. Mary Magdalene was able to see Jesus in uh, John 20, 10 through 18. Yep. Uh, you've got Peter in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. Yep. Um, two disciples in Luke 24, 13 through 35. The ten, 10 disciples were able to see Jesus, but they didn't believe it was him. It says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh bones as ye see me have. Yeah. So Jesus, contrary to many other religions, Jesus is, God is very much so in, in the business of having us examine and understand why we believe what we believe. That is why I said this a couple of weeks ago, we are called to love the Lord our God with not only our strength, but not only our heart, with not only, you know, everything in us 
we also are called to love him with all of our mind, and we can't love him with all of our mind without understanding, at least in general terms, what we believe and why. There's a there's also the Great Commission. Um, I believe that was all yeah. of them. Yeah, all the disciples um, were commissioned in Matthew 28. And uh, Mark 16, and, and in 14 Mark 16. through 18. Yep. Afterwards, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat and ate meat, upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And then he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So, so Jesus physically not only appeared to one or two people, because that would be definitely warrant to say, well, I don't know if that actually happened. He appeared to many people, and there was another gospel account in First Corinthians 15 that accounted saying Jesus appeared upwards to 500 people at one time and spoke, and they saw him. Uh, and James saw him alive. All the apostles saw him alive and ascended and attested to it to their death. And we're going to close on, on these notes here. The, all of the disciples, think about this. Isaac, I'm going to ask you these questions. You tell me, you tell me what you think. Oh, great. <laughs> okay, so what was the disciples' reaction when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane? Um, well, I know that Peter, Peter himself, which is a representation of who I see myself, you know, in, in the matter of how it act is that he cut off the guard's ear. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't even a guard. It was just a messenger. So what did they um, do? They go with him to the death? How they, did that work? They ran off. Yeah. The majority of them ran off and scattered. And, and did Jesus tell them that it was going to happen? Yeah. He told them that they were going to depart. He told them that they were going to scatter. And one of the verses that I believe I, I, I uh, touched on yeah, earlier. Prior, prior to his death, he talked about his death and his resurrection. He said, you guys are going to forsake me. Yep. And it's, it's crazy. And they're like, no, I'm not going to leave you. I'd, I'd die with you. And so I find that really, really, really awesome. Here's what's really awesome about that, though, in regards to the resurrection. What was their reaction to Christ and the things of God and boldly proclaiming or not boldly proclaiming what they what they saw and heard after he rose and showed himself to them their first initial intake on that christ was resurrected was that of doubt yeah and they, but, they but did what did they go on believe. to even after jesus ascended what was the reaction to all that what did they do went out to preach the gospel they he they had been given the great commission Yep. To go and preach the gospel unto all creature, unto everybody, which is in turn is what we're doing too. Yep, yep. So the same disciples that were running and hiding the night that Jesus was arrested, after they said they go to the death with him, they ran and hid, which again was a fairly natural reaction. Uh, the, the very disciples, they went fishing yeah. after he rose and they weren't quite sure whether or not he really was rose from the dead. Uh, the same disciples that were hiding in the upper room when Jesus first appeared to all of them, those same disciples went to the death believing and stating that they that Jesus not only resurrected but he ascended to the Father and that he was God in flesh. It just goes to show that you don't necessarily have to be a perfect person um, because none of them are. You know, there are those times where they backslid. Yeah. Peter backslid, James backslid. All of them ran away from the, the catching and capturing of Christ. Yeah. It just goes to show you that you can have those times and God you, can you're redeem going us to have those times and that God's going to God will redeem them would redeem you all if you have that that sincerity of your heart. Yeah. Seek and ye shall find knock and the door shall be opened. Yes. The problem with many people here today is 
when they're knocking, they're not truly looking for answers. They're looking to find exactly what they want to see, and if they don't find that, they they they're stop looking for a quick together. fix. Yeah, and that yeah yeah. And God is not a genie. No. Um, to do what, what, what Jesus is not a genie to do whatever it is that we want him to do. Yeah. Granted, he does say, "Ask and it shall be given." Yeah. There's but some context to that. Th- there's some context to that prerequisites. <laughs> yeah. You have to one have your heart right, two have your mind right, three you have to have your spirit right too, n- knowing what it is that you're praying for. Be in the will of God. Be yeah. specific. Be in the will of God. Like in high school, and have like a test coming up, and pray that God. Please just help me with this test. And you haven't studied a single lick. Yeah. You talked about studying. Even though you may not have all the answers, you can, you could say that I did my best. And that is why I believe we should study what we believe and why. So that when people ask what we believe and why, we can most of the time have an answer or be ready to give an answer. And if not, be honest about it. Say, yeah, I don't actually know the answer to that right now, but uh, I'll study and find out. Or I will be diligent to, to seek the answer for that. And and be willing to be wrong sometimes in what you believe. Be willing to be willing to lay down your defenses when somebody challenges you and, and, and just be more of a presenter of what you believe and why. It's we're not here to beat people into Christianity. That's you know, some people criticize apologetics, saying you're just trying to convince people mentally. We're supposed to win them spiritually. That is true. It's not the fact that I have the knowledge of Christ rising from the dead that saves me, it's the fact that I believe and receive that knowledge to be personal. And so let me ask you this in closing. Have you received Christ as your Savior? Have you believed and understood that he died and rose again and ascended to the Father for you? And if not, why not? You can do so today. It's free. It's simple. And the life that you're called to live after may not be simple. Most of the disciples went to their deaths, brutal martyrdom deaths. He paid the price for your sins. Turn away from your sin and put your whole trust in Jesus. And it'll show forth in your life. There'll be fruit. I appreciate you joining us once again for this episode. I know we shotgunned a lot of things out there, and we might do a part two of the resurrection going over some things that we weren't able to touch on today. What do you think of today's episode? Let us know in the uh, little comment box below this episode if there be one, or reach out to us on Facebook on Bold Believer. I'm Josh Snyder signing out. This is Ike Danford. Remember, stay blessed. Be humbled, have God vibes, and be Be a bold believer. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. Be sure to give us a rating and follow us for more Christ-centered content as we learn and grow together wherever you get your podcasts. Now, go out and be a bold believer.